Do you have a case of BLS, also known as Beige Leadership Syndrome? I just made that up, but I promise you it is a thing. Consider the death by PowerPoints, all the buzzwords. Let's circle back or let's double click on this or the stuffy formality of those mind melting meetings led by folks droning on and on and on. I'm really hoping today's guest is going to save us all. Enter Aaron Hatsikostis, a former corporate CEO who smashed the executive mold with her authentic leadership style, which included doing the running man in some of her team meetings. During her years in the C-suite, Erin became known for her authentic leadership because she brought fun and heart and a little bit of the unexpected alongside her professionalism and credibility. She led this way because it's who she is, and instead of diluting her authenticity or hiding it under her pinstripes, she realized it was a superpower. A lot of the leaders who I coach are also looking for ways to bring more of themselves to their leadership and to be more vulnerable. That's another term we're hearing a lot about thanks to Brene Brown's work. Many of these clients have done a lot of inner work and have a sense of who they are. They're comfortable-ish with being authentic, but then what? How do you do authenticity in your leadership? How do you bring some pizzazz and a bit of the unexpected to avoid the dreaded beige leadership syndrome. Nowadays, Erin is a career coach. She's a TEDx speaker. She's a podcast host and an author. And I think you're going to love her unpretentious real talk on authentic leadership. And stay with me, even if the word authenticity makes you want to hurl. Before we dive in, welcome to Enough, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mandy Leto, ex-investment banker turned executive coach. This is a podcast for high achievers whose lives look shiny and successful on the outside, but inside you're secretly adrenalized and bone tired and you're wondering, is this all there is? And you're wondering when it'll ever feel enough because it doesn't. If all this makes you feel like screaming into the vortex, I feel you and I'm so glad you're here. I drop us into today's conversation where Erin talks about her quick no thanks to her first C-suite job offer because she didn't like the way that she thought a senior leader had to be. Ready? Let's dive in. My career was going great. I was at a company for 17 years. I had been promoted, you know, several times doing doing jobs that I was highly unqualified to do. And I, you know, got a call one day. It was a Friday. I'll never forget it. I was working from home, pre-COVID, but I worked from home from time to time. And my boss said, you know, this is a little heavy for a Friday, but I've decided to leave the company. And I want to see if it's okay to recommend you as our next COO, as, as my successor. And Mandy, I paused and I replied so quickly and I was like, no, thank you. And what happened in that quick moment is I ran what I now call the compromise calculation. Didn't know it at the time, but um, the compromise calculation is essentially this calculation where we think that there is a anti-correlation between our career success and everything else in life, right? Like there's this slope of a line that as our career success goes up, everything in our, else in our life is going to have to go down. Our relationships with our partners, with our children, our health. And maybe even who we 
we are. And so I immediately was like, okay, I'm, I'm leading strategy product and marketing. I'm getting paid decent. I don't have a lot of stress. If I take the COO job, you know, that's a whole new level. That's operations. And as I do my compromise calculation, as I go up in my career, like I'm just not, it's just not worth it, right? To give up these other things. But he was smart. Um, we had a conversation about it. He said, think about it over the weekend. And so I, of course, over the weekend, I didn't just think about it. I, you know, asked to sit at basketball games and I'd ask a friend and tell, you know, tell people, here's the conundrum. And I was offered this opportunity, but I said no. And of course, everybody I asked had a different opinion. And at the end of the day, right, nobody knew the answer but me. And something finally hit me as I really finally like stopped talking to people and started thinking about why, why was it that I was worried about taking this C-suite position? And what I realized is that I didn't want to become those other people. Like all of a sudden I pictured the people in the C-suite, right? Throughout the company or the executives at the company. And I saw road warriors. I saw heart attacks. I saw divorces. I saw stuffy people who sent out snooty, you know, emails that nobody read that were boring. And I was like, I just don't, I don't want to cross that line. And, and then it hit me and I, I will, you know, if you hear nothing else on this podcast, write this one down, listen to it. I use it time and time again for myself and for others. It hit me. You shouldn't not do something because you hate the way it was done before. Instead, do it your own way. And what I realized is that I didn't have to become those people. And I didn't know it at the time. And now in hindsight, it was like, yeah, Aaron, the things that had gotten you to that point already were that I was a little bit different. I was authentic. I wasn't using that word yet. I was, I told stories. I, you know, I did the running man and team meetings, like, and those were the same things that were going to make me successful at that next level, even though it had like the C-suite title. So I went back on Monday, I decided to say yes. And I decided to, you know, just sort of do it my own way. And, and it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be this big, huge rebel. And it, it was just that I sort of calmed that compromise calculation and that picture in my mind that by taking that job, I had to, had to do X or I had to become Y. And I'm excited to say that over the, you know, I took the job, did it for a year. And then a year later, our CEO uh, was moved to a new organization and same thing happened. We're going to name you interim CEO, but we're going to go out and look, see if there's anybody better. Um, which of course at, at the time really ticked me off. And then it, and then I thought, well, I need to make sure I want this job too. So while you're interviewing other people, I'm going to quote unquote interview this job. And I'm excited to say that in three years when I had no idea what I was doing and I took over quite frankly, a, a subsidiary company that was in the pooper. We hadn't grown earnings for four years. Uh, people were miserable, right? Because we couldn't reinvest in our people. People like to be winners. Um, when you're flat uh, growth, it's not a great place to be. And in three years, we tripled earnings. Employee engagement went up 12 percentage points. And I, all along the way though, I kept feeling like, when am I going to be found out? And this is really important. And this is not imposter syndrome. I'm sorry. I just like... It's not that I don't believe in that. I just had, I had gotten the memo on that. I like, I, I knew that you had to sort of lean over. You had to kind of make some stuff up. Um, you had to do things you were unqualified to do, but mine was more of like, I was waiting for my luck to run out. I, I and, and here's why I literally, cause we would go to conference rooms every month. This is the olden days, right? We'd sit in conference rooms and do our monthly reviews with our big boss or our quarterly business reviews. So I would sit next to my peers and I'd hear about their business and I'd hear about 
them being on the road every week. I would hear about them giving up vacations because some, you know, big system disaster. I'd hear about them moving their family. I had a friend that moved her family three times in like five years with her little ones. And I wasn't sacrificing as much as they were. So I kind of was like, okay, when's, when's my luck going to run out? And then I decided to retire, which is a whole nother story. I really just was yearning for something new and different. I wasn't miserable. Um, in fact, things were going great. And what happened, Mandy, was 90% of the messages and the people in you know, the conversations kept saying, we're going to miss your authentic leadership. And I wasn't surprised to be called authentic, but I hadn't like that hadn't been a word that had been used. You know, it wasn't like every day people were like, hey, authentic, Aaron. Um, and so when I finally heard that so many times, it hit me that I wasn't going to be found out. I was actually playing a different game. I was just playing a different game as a leader. And that different game actually had driven the results. And so that's why now I'm ridiculously obsessed for the last five years and probably forever about talking about authenticity and not in a fluffy, like find yourself or be your authentic self crap, but authenticity actually as a strategy, as a strategic differentiator, as a, a somewhat conscious and purposeful thing that you do in order not just to love your career, but also to have success in what you do. What I love about this conversation so far is Erin's Frank Sinatra moment. I did it my way. And in doing it her way, Erin helped to increase employee engagement and triple the company's earnings in three years, which is seriously impressive. There is value in authentic leadership. And Erin will share some compelling stats on this later in the episode. I coach a lot of people at big transition points in their lives, and some leave their companies because they just can't see any compelling leaders up ahead. No one that would inspire them to be authentic or to continue their journey up through the C-suite. And like Aaron said, you see the burnout, the heart attacks, the relocations, the jadedness, how dead many people look behind the eyes. Okay, that last bit was my add-on but I'm not wrong. I suspect that more authentic leadership might also have a retention effect. It might help rising talent to find authentic ways of leading for themselves. But the way that it did for Aaron, it might make saying yes to that senior leadership role feel more like something you can see yourself doing and not the way that others have done it before. So let's gear shift into the how of authentic leadership. Aaron, what would you say to someone who's willing, but a little hesitant to explore this, and they're secretly wondering if they have to do the running man in the team meeting? Well, I mean, the first thing I would do is I would give a little love tap across, you know, across the face and say, first thing to know is authenticity is actually not about you. It's not about you. It's about your ability to make connections and build trust and create a little bit of intrigue with others. So I'm going to get all non-woo-woo and get sort of quote unquote academic, which my version of academic is not all that academic. So don't worry. But the root, the root of the word, the, the Greek root is authentikos. And authentikos means three things. It means to be genuine, but also means to be original and authoritative. Because here's the thing. I knew when people said, oh, we're going to miss your authentic leadership. Like, I didn't walk into work my authentic self. 
I didn't walk into work like if I went to my friend Jen's pool party. Like, you don't want that, right? You know, there was there was a bit of a juxtaposition. There was, yes, there was the the leader that did the running man on stage at, you know, leadership things. But there was also the woman that like made some tough decisions and called the shots when they needed to, right? And so anyway, back to the root of the word, it really isn't about simply being yourself. I I tell people all the time when I do keynotes and work with groups, um, it does not mean the same as be yourself. Sorry. I'm sorry. Time, time to like expose that. And it also doesn't mean the same as transparency. They are not the same word. And there's a couple of ways that I define it. And then I have a model, but I want to stay away from that right now. But the first is authenticity is really about exposing who you are when people least expect it in the service of others. And so I want to break that one down and then I want to give you a, a second definition. Authenticity is exposing who you are when people least expect it in the service of others. What I mean about by that, the best way to give you an example is, you know, pre-COVID when I was still running uh, the corporate company I ran, we actually did WebExes. We were, yeah, we were way ahead of our time. We did WebEx uh, video. It wasn't mandatory, but I did my team meetings that way because we were, you know, we had people in several locations. We did have some part-time work at home. And I remember one meeting, my head of product coming to the meeting and her face was a little bit red and she had a cap on. It was because she just had gone for a run and decided instead of, right, instead of taking a shower, she was going to go for a run. She was going to put her health first and she came on. Call. Now, back then, that was a big deal. <laughs> she was in a sweatshirt, right, with a baseball cap. That's exposing who you are when people least expect it in the service of others. Maybe she didn't, maybe she was doing it for herself because she wanted to get that run in. But at the end of the day, once you start doing it more purposefully, you also would do it to make people feel more comfortable, right? And feel like they don't have to be perfect, et cetera. Now, fast forward, if somebody came onto a call like that now, would it be that unusual? Maybe not, right? We're sort of post-COVID people are used to, you know, the sweatshirts, the yoga pants, the, you know, maybe even the baseball caps. But at the end of the day, when you are willing to, for example, give one of your faults, tell a humility story, it creates immediate connection and trust. And it takes work to do that. So for example, the reason I say authenticity is, is, isn't about you and it's also work an example would be when you're introducing yourself at a business development meeting, or maybe it's a customer finalist meeting. It's easy to go through the motions and say, hi, I'm Aaron Hesekostas. I spent 20 years, you know, doing this and 10 years doing this, blah, 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 blah. but people are bored and they're tuning out because all they're thinking about is what they're going to say. Right. Instead, if you say, wait, what if I use authenticity purposely? And so I actually work with companies and their teams, especially sales teams on creating an intriguing intro. And so if you have the guts instead to, to, you know, help them find a humility moment. So they start with a story, like what might be important for you to know about me is that I'm CFO, but I also need you to know that, you know, in college I failed my econ class and I learned this from failing that class. And then I went on and then we work on putting in a big brag and then what's in it for them. But it creates this like, unexpected, like, whoa, I didn't expect you to tell me you, you know, you failed at your econ class or you constantly fall down every time you like walk through doors or whatever that is. And so what it does is it, it just really humanizes and it helps people connect with you. And in the business world, there's nothing more important, especially externally, but I would say internally too, than connection and trust, right? Like it is 
everything, whether it's with your team that you're leading with the executives that you want to trust with your, what you're doing, or obviously externally as you're trying to sell a new prospect and client. And so you can use these elements of authenticity to be able to do that. So that's definition number one. The, the other thing, not to sort of pile too much onto your listeners, is, is a definition I've been using also lately that authenticity is really about focusing on what's needed, not on what's normal. And gosh darn it, in the business world, do we spend a lot of time focusing on what's normal, right? What is the normal way to run a meeting? What's the normal way to present to an executive? What's the normal way to write an email to sound like I should be in the position I am and to sound smart? Instead saying, okay, instead of focusing on what's normal, what if I focused on what's needed? How does that change what you would do? And it changes everything, right? If you think about that email, well, if you're writing an email about an organizational change, what do your employees actually need? They need candor. They might need inspiration. They need normal language so they can understand what the heck's going on. And so, you know, that's that's why I talk about authenticity to, so tangibly, because especially in the business world, the business world essentially is like this flowing river, right? There is a current that takes us down this path of doing what's right or doing what's normal, of checking the boxes, of looking good, of playing it safe so that, you know, my executive thinks I know what I'm doing. But at the end of the day, that's not what they want. They want different. They want to trust you. They want refreshing. And so authenticity takes work to sort of start swimming upstream the other direction. And if you do that by focusing on what's, you know, what's needed, not what's normal and about exposing who you are and ultimately doing it for others, not for yourself. It changes everything. And of course, if you start focusing on others and doing these hard, this hard work, all the benefits come back to you. And now you get to have a big role, do big things, but do it your own way successfully without, you know, the ick and the home and the stress. Quick recap. Authenticos is about being genuine, original, and authoritative. It's not just being yourself, as Aaron says, and turning up to work like you're going to a friend's pool party. It's something you consciously work on in service of others by building connection and trust. You do this by starting to focus on humility moments, jot them down somewhere in a notebook, and see how you can use them to illustrate a point. Try them out in meetings or town halls or one-to-one catch-ups. Another way you can start leading with Authenticos is focusing on what's needed, not what's normal. Not only does this make leadership more compelling and less stuffy and dull, it also connects because all business is P2P, person to person. Give yourself some time to get good at this. So many of us have spent years and even decades creating this corporate persona. So Aaron, what's your advice for getting started? I mean, the first is don't change overnight, just experiment. I mean, my success and why I do this is simply because I had a father who was super authentic as a teacher and then later as a real estate agent. And I just, I saw his data points subconsciously of his success. And he, you know, he was always telling stories. He was always telling people like it is, like he was doing it different. You have to collect your own data. You know, certainly listening to this podcast, you can take a little of my data, both 
metaphorically, and then I'm going to give you some real data. But most most importantly, you need to collect your own data. So it would be you know something simple like let's say you send out weekly or maybe even their irregular emails to your team. And they're normally full of buzzwords and like, here's the status report and here's where our earnings are, whatever it is. Play with telling a story. Uh, is there a metaphorical story that could sort of, you know, inspire them like this is where we are? Or maybe it's even a real story, not even metaphorical about something just happened in the, in the, in the organization or a meeting you just had with a customer, something like that, or experiment with going to a meeting and instead of having, uh, you know, your normal agenda say, Hey, we're going to, we're just going to center around these three questions. And I actually, I have something called the authenticity playbook. Uh, so I have my book, but I also have a free download that gives you 10 quote unquote plays or experiments that help you understand like how, how, and when you do those things, that first experiment, all you're looking for is if I wrote an email, does Nobody normally respond, but I got five people that wrote, oh my gosh, this was so inspiring. Or if you're at an executive meeting, does that executive that usually has their head in their phone or isn't paying attention, look up. Does that curmudgeon person smile that normally doesn't smile, right? That, that, that client of yours that's always grumpy. Um, so look for those little indicators that you're building trust, you're getting people's attention, you're connecting into them better. And what will happen, I always tell people, I don't change people, I change their addiction. And the way you change your addiction is just doing experiment and be like, oh my God, that meeting was so much more effective. Oh my gosh, that executive seemed to like me so much better. Oh my gosh, we sold a customer that we've been trying to sell for two years. And then, you know, eventually the training wheels will just come off. You won't need the stuff I talk about. You wouldn't need my playbook or my book or whatever. You'll just start going. So that's number one experiment. The second thing I will tell you is we did research on this. So a couple of years ago, you know, we said, well, what if we actually put tangibility to our theory that authenticity is better for companies? And we looked, we took a very internal sort of leadership culture sort of view, our next study, I definitely will be on external and sales and things like that, a place where I'm spending more of my time. But we found some fascinating things. So just a couple of the data points, you know, for example, we found that, uh, you know, we asked people if your, is your manager authentic or not? And then we separately asked them, if your manager left the company, would you follow them? And people that uh, had an authentic manager were, you know, four times more likely to, to follow them. We found an insane correlation between companies that had authentic cultures and those that didn't between customer, uh, the, the chances that they would stay and retain uh, their employment. So we saw 92% of people uh, at authentic, highly authentic cultures would likely work for that company two years from now. And those that weren't, we saw 40%. We saw things like trust through the roof. We saw even people who said I directly got promotions and other things because of my authenticity. So it's not just you. I mean, this, so this is the, this is the metaphor I always try to tell people um, that I think is really important. So Mandy, I forget you. Have, do you have children? I don't think you do. Yes. Yeah. Four collectively. So remember those birthday parties when they were little, when they were maybe like three to five, six years old, and you would go to some place, usually like a bouncy house or something like that, and they would do their thing. And then they would come into this other room and they would have their pizza and the cake, right? And 
the hosting parents would bring around the pizza, the kids would all eat it, then they would bring around the cake. And of course the kids, you know, can I have an extra piece? Can I have more ice cream, right? They all would take their cake. And then what would happen? You know, the parents all would awkwardly stand around the outside waiting for this damn party to be over and they'd always have extra cake. And then they would come around and, and they would ask you, would you like a piece of cake? Now, what do most people would say? There's that awkward moment. No, no thanks. Right? So yeah, yeah. No thanks. But what are most people? Oh thinking? hell yes! Shovel it in. <laughs> that is authenticity in the workplace. We think we are the only ones that want the cake. We think we have this disease that we think we're the only ones that really are craving that, and the reality is everybody is craving it. In fact, our study showed that when we looked at across, you know, so when we did the survey, we looked at executives, just regular leaders, and then uh, individual contributors. And of those three sort of echelons, if you will, the group that was most put most importance and most wanted authenticity were the people at the flipping top. And we think they don't because they put on an act and think they're not supposed to have the cake or nobody else wants the cake. Everybody wants the cake. So eat the cake, mm. dish out the cake. I want to go deeper into storytelling as a means of practicing your authentic leadership. Storytelling is a muscle and everyone can get better at it. Even you. Aaron, where do we start? I would start by observing within your own company, the little things. And they're, they're happening already today. You just hadn't put a name to it, right? You hadn't, you, you maybe go to a meeting, you're like, I really like that leader. I don't know. I always listen to and I'll stop and like diagnose it. What is it that you like about them? What do they do a little bit differently? How do they talk? What do they do? So I would say, you know, really observe within that. But then what you said is, is right. It is a muscle. And I say this all the time. It is work to be authentic. If you think it's easy, then you're just going and being your authentic self. And then you're like, well, it's not working. It's like, well, because nobody wants totally your authentic self. And I'm not saying be somebody you're not, but if you're not putting that lens on, okay, how do I be myself, but in a way that serves others, you're sort of missing half the piece. Um, the other thing I would tell you is use the 50% rule. And you might say, okay, well, what is the 50% rule? Great question. The 50% rule is something that you know, I had been out, I've been out for five years speaking about authenticity. I have a framework called humans and, and storytelling or narrating is one of, is the end in humans. And I've been talking about all this. And meanwhile, I had sort of organically grown something called the 50% rule that was helping me who was, was struggling, finding my way in this whole new profession of being an entrepreneur, being a speaker, a, a coach and consultant. And the 50% rule is really simple at its core. It's basically says anytime you learn something new or you're going to do something that you don't like to do or that feels like it's wheels so much, only do about half of normal, half of what people teach you, half of what you learn, the other half add in your own. So half normal, half new is sort of the punchy definition. And add in your own ideas and uh, what feels more like you, what feels better, what feels different. And this 50% rule is so freaking powerful that I actually just turned in my manuscript yesterday to my, to my literary agent and wrote 60,000 words about it. Because what happens when you start 
using this basic definition is you also start to learn that not only does it make you feel better about getting through your own little hurdles or something that feels icky or feels hard, or feel, it actually is the formula that helps you stand out to create something fresh and innovative and new. So I'll leave it there. The, the book has stories of everything from Hamilton to the Savannah Bananas to Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Weird Al to um, Shopify, you name it, of all of these people that I realized once I put on my 50% rule classes that they had, of course, unknowingly used this, the components of the 50% rule to create just amazing success. And so that's the, that's the other thing I would hand you is this little, it's like a little tool, it's a little hack. So if you're feeling like one, that word, you know, do it authentically or you do you boo feels like, okay, that's, you know, like you said, like you need a barf bag. Instead, I encourage you to say, well, what if I 50% ruled it? I asked Erin to give us an example of how she used the 50% rule with a real life situation so we can learn how to use it to add our own authenticity spice to a project. So a good example would be I was doing um, Amy Porterfield's course creation. So a lot of your listeners might not know what that is if they're in the corporate world, but Amy Porterfield is this woman who is like the queen of creating digital courses. And when you start to become an entrepreneur, you're like so lured into, oh, a digital course, like you create something once and then you sell it and you just, you know, you make money while you sleep kind of thing and you help people while you sleep. And so I signed up for her course. I paid the, I don't know, it was a couple thousand dollars. And I, you, you should know, I am not a disciplined person. Like project plans, doing things linearly makes me break out in hives. I'm more of a creative and Enneagram seven. I like to think of big things and do them like in all different, but I was like, oh my gosh, this is so important. She is such the queen. She knows what to do. I mean, I printed out, she must've had 18 different modules, 32 different worksheets. I printed them out. I highlighted them. I went through the steps and then I, um, it came time to record, right? So you record the videos and my part-time nanny at the time, you know, wasn't needing to nanny for me as much because I was working from home. I'm like, what if you help me with my business? What if you help me with this course? So she was my videographer. So it was totally the blind leading the blind, right? But I, you know, I showed her, here's what we need to do. Here's how, you know, I've followed her thing. I've outlined the course. Let's shoot the videos. So picture us, we spent, I don't know, maybe four or five hours until we were just sort of be and, and shot videos. You know, of course the first ones we did like 13 takes and then it got easier and it got easier and we got through the day and we got about half the videos recorded. And then that night I was laying in bed. I remember it clear as day. And I was just like, all of a sudden my brain slowed down and I thought about what we did. And I was like, okay, we finished those. Those were good. And then I was like, oh, I don't like good. I'm not a, like, I've never been a good person. I'm a freaking great person. Like when I do things, I do them like amazing, right? I don't check boxes. And, and so then I was like, wait a minute. And, and what hit me was I had been following a hundred percent everything she was teaching, but here are the differences between Amy and I, Amy, very disciplined, very linear, knows her stuff, right? Her weaknesses, not very good at improv, not very funny. Uh, her material is obviously different, but it's, it's about courses. My material is about authenticity. And I was, and it hit me. I was like, wait a minute. 
but I'm really good at improv I'm funny. Like I'm talking about authenticity, but I'm not demonstrating authenticity. And so, and then I was like, uh, what if we 50% rolled it? And so I went back the next morning, Caitlin came over and I was like, okay, we're starting over. And I, and I kind of filled her in and we have, I've never been so excited. I remember we were dancing to this is me from the greatest showman. And we were so excited. And I had, I mean, I had this stupid, and we even did one video from my bathtub upstairs. Cause the, 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 module was about sort of uh, taking care of yourself. And so we like put me in a tank top bubbles, funny things like we I remember she even spelled out like SHIT with like kids phone letters that I still had for my kids were babies. But it was real subtle in the background. We had so much fun recording those videos. And at the end of the day, also, I, I was doing what was needed, not what was normal, the people I was trying to teach about authenticity, and then not being authentic and being different and being bold was really stupid. And so that's just one of many examples where not only does a 50% rule help you get through the barrier, it obviously will help my material stood out, right? People were excited to watch it because it wasn't your normal course. And you just are propelled to do it instead of feeling, you know, I always say it turns, you know, discipline into desire. And it just, it makes it so much more fun. So let's do a quick rapid fire way since you were CEO in corporate of somebody listening who's who has a couple of different scenarios and they're like okay well i don't know i can't quite see how to apply this to my life in corporate so say somebody gets the icks when they have to address a slightly larger group so they're used to speaking to their team but now they have to speak to 25 people and that's giving them the icks they got to stand there behind their little podium or stand at the powerpoint what could they do differently yeah i would say first what is your strength so if your strength is, you know, connecting with people one-on-one, well, don't start at the, the, at the podium then. Go out into the audience or if it's virtual, like literally go to the camera and have those sort of one-on-one questions and conversation to start, like get yourself into the groove. So if you're literally like, I am great in a small meeting, I'm great one-on-one, people love me, I, I, I seize up when I'm in front of the room. Well, that's probably because you're, you're not being your normal jovial self asking questions. So I would, I would say, how do you replicate what makes you more awesome one-on-one and just do that even though there's 25 people there? What about somebody who has to, who's inherited a big team, for example, they used to lead a hundred people. Now they're leading a thousand people. They're global and they now need to motivate and address these people on a global scale. A lot of it will be virtual. They need to get to know people. They're not sure how to do that. How do they bring more authenticity into, into building more glue now that they're the leader? Yeah. I mean, a couple of things come to mind. One, because that's about the size I ran. And one of my big mistakes with the thousand person is I thought I was the glue. I thought I was the energizer bunny. And I, and I like my team loved me, right? My direct reports, our office, because we had five offices, our office in Connecticut was like, but he was in good moods. And then I realized it's literally impossible for me with a thousand people what you need to do is focus your intention and how do you create an inspiration platform? Meaning how do you enable and create this environment where other people are inspiring other people? Cause logistically you can't, you can't actually be the person, even if you're as awesome as possibly can be. I thought I was really awesome. And then I got my first year employee survey results and they like barely had moved. And I'm like, what, what? Everybody's so happy. They're so energized. Well, it just physically is impossible. And once I took a step back and said, I need to enable others. So that looked like things like my staff meetings. I would just start with um, slow down and inspire. And we would spend 10 minutes doing that. Well, then what happened was they people would tell a story about 
a neat um, leadership thing they did, or maybe somebody on their team just lost hundred pounds or, you know, it'd just be anything inspiring. Then they started bringing their version to their team meetings. And then all of a sudden I showed up at our daily operations meetings, which are normally hell because it was basically like what's broken today. Cause we, it was a very complicated technological system that we managed We managed money. And, um, these daily meetings, I, I remember showing up and all of a sudden the person leading it, who was like four layers below me in the organization started motivation Monday. And so she would have a quote and then Fridays were good, feel, feel good Fridays. And even at these 30 minute operational meetings, she was doing that. And that wasn't because I was inspiring all those people was because I created an inspiration platform. And so I would say the same for you. How do you think about setting up an environment that allows people, other people to inspire other people? I know that's not a very 50% really answer, but that's like something really close to my heart. You can't, you can't be the person. You actually have to be the person that creates the platform. I ask every guest to leave a brick of wisdom, something that may have jiggled up in the conversation or something that you think, oh, I wish you would have asked me that. Something that you're feeling that you want to share with the audience. What would that brick of wisdom be? I would just remind you that the best way to be authentic and have results is simply to do what you would want. Ask yourself, if I'm getting an email from this person, what would I, if I'm going to a town hall, what makes me snooze and what would make me excited? What, you know, I guess it goes back to what's needed, not what's normal. Like stop thinking you are the only one that wants refreshing and new and instead go out and actually be that person that's refreshing and new. And at the end of the day, authenticity is as contagious as a yawn in church. Watch how it will fly around both with your team, but more importantly, up the ladder as well. <laughs> I'm still giggling about the more contagious than a yawn in church comment. Okay, so you have learned in this episode that authenticity isn't simply just be yourself. It's actually a consistent and concerted effort to be of service to others by being different in a way that feels genuine, by being original, by thinking about what's needed instead of what's normal. I love the idea of the 50% rule if you're following a structure of some kind where you mostly follow the rules and then you add your own improvisation into it. But a little footnote for me, please do not follow the 50% rule if you are a pilot or a surgeon or an eyebrow technician. We like rules there, folks. So thanks so much for that. I think Aaron and I have done a great job here, if I say so myself, of lessening the beige leadership syndrome. Erin's details are in the show notes, including her books and her podcast, and I'll include the episode of me being interviewed on her show in case you want to listen to the more to more of us riffing. Now, before you leave, there are three levels of support that you can give to enough the podcast if you are getting value from what I'm creating here. So level three, I'm going to call this the high five level. Please hit the follow button on the show before you leave Apple or Spotify, and I'm sending you a heartfelt high five in gratitude for that. Level two is what I'm calling the Rolo level. Did you ever share your last Rolo with somebody in high school? So sharing is caring. So who would you share this episode with who would be so darn grateful that you did? So thank you to those Rolo levelers of you. And level one is what I call the trumpet fanfare level. Leave a review on Spotify or Apple podcasts 
And if you don't know how to do that, my team will send you an easy peasy instruction sheet if you email me at hello at mandyleto.com. That's M-A-N-D-Y-L-E-H-T-O.com with the subject line pod review. Thank you so much for listening. Let's do this all again in a couple of weeks. 